0: Recently, I had the pleasure of talking to Angelica Galante from McGill University in Canada. Originally from Brazil, her work focuses on social justice, inclusive education, and critical sociolinguistics. In this interview, we talk about plurilingualism, language and culture, and how teachers and students can take advantage of their existing language resources to learn new languages better. I hope you enjoy it. Angelica Galante, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So before we start, just for people who don't know you and your work, could you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with where I come from. So I am originally from Brazil and I am based in Canada now. Uh, So growing up in Brazil, of course, I had to learn Portuguese as a first language. But, you know, at home I actually grew up speaking other languages because I have Spanish and Italian Uh, heritage. So um, it was very common for me to be, you know, using the three languages at home. And of course at school, English is uh, a very popular language, an international language, so it's uh, it's very common that everybody in Brazil learns English as a second language. But in my case, it was more as a fourth language. Not that I spoke all these languages fluently, but you know, they were all inside me somehow. Um, And uh, I worked as an english teacher for a long time in brazil before coming to canada so um, i did i went to university did an english literature degree then i also studied theater then i thought i would merge theater and english together and that became the project for my master's degree so i came to canada to pursue my master's degree Um, where I uh, investigated the use of theater or drama in language teaching, particularly in EFL, English as a foreign language. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about this project, but later perhaps. (laughs) uh, So, um, and then I, of course, I did my PhD here in Canada as well, and I decided to stay. So here in Canada, I'm an immigrant. Um, which changes a little bit the dynamics of how people can position themselves. You know, from Brazil as a big shot, I was used to be an English coordinator in a very uh, famous uh, English school there, and then coming to Canada to become a student, a master's student, an international student, which has another status as well, and then becoming an immigrant. And having to use English only all the time in Ontario, that's where I was based. Um, and then a year ago, I moved to Quebec, which is a different story. So Quebec is uh, an, a, a French-speaking province here in Canada. Uh, so I have to, not that I have to, but I'm very interested in learning languages anyway. So uh, French is one of the languages that I am uh, learning at this moment slowly but <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that's, an, that's an impressive an impressive roster of languages that uh, you've encountered in your life
1: yeah yeah and I'm very glad and I feel very privileged to have had this you know not only uh, the immigrant background from my family but also me as an immigrant and also you know educational context that allowed me to study different languages so but that's a reality for a lot of people um and that's something that you know it's it's an oversight right some some people just you know think that because you come from australia so english is the only language that you speak not to mention all the indigenous languages you have in australia right yeah, uh exactly. or you know uh, the background where you come from so typically the languages that are taught at school are the ones that are valid and the, the the languages that you know you encounter along the way uh, from family communities or even internet nowadays you know it's so this is so common uh, music arts etc. So of course this this background has influenced my work both as a drama educator and also as uh, a language teacher and language uh, language education researcher. So what I do, uh, the, the research that I do now, there are two areas, so I do, I always include drama somehow, uh, because it's a very um, good approach to get students to speak uh, an additional language, especially. Um, but I'm very interested in validating students' linguistic background, linguistic and cultural background in the first place, whenever they are learning any language. Of course, I tend to, to, to work with uh, English teachers, because That's my background, this is one of the languages that I teach or that I taught. Um, In English here, in this context, is a minority language, which is (laughs) very interesting because we're in Canada. Um, In Canada, of course, English is a majority language um, uh, in the country, but in Quebec, it is considered a minority language because French, uh, we have more French speakers and the policy here states that French should be the language Uh, you know taught in school etc etc it's
0: it's into it's really interesting how your your status as an immigrant depends so much on on where you come from and what language you speak like you know you'll probably never find anybody from 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 London calling an Australian an immigrant even though that's exactly what they are just you know but if you if you you know if you're from Africa and and you're you're black and you you speak a, maybe a an indigenous language you're an immigrant, and and even me even me here in Spain you know no one's ever called me an immigrant because well I, I fit the I'm sort of European in a way right it's, but you know I'm the same as any other immigrant here.
1: That's right. The, the, the label immigrant comes, uh, it's, it's, it's a heavy construct, right? Mm. So uh, it comes with a lot of assumptions. It comes, it's not only where you come from, but also what you look like, what you sound like. So if you don't look white European, then you're labeled an immigrant. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Or, expat, or even that, that, that idea of expat and immigrant, uh, yeah. I kind of laugh when I see the word expect. It's like, okay, so that means a white <laughs> person who is an immigrant somewhere else, uh, whereas other people are considered immigrant. But, um, well, we'll, well, we'll make a change somehow, sometime.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, un- unfortunately, these kind of uh, cultural changes, you know, they take a generation or two, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So... It, it takes a long time. <laughs> Before we can start to talk about some of your work specifically, I think we actually need to learn some kind of new vocabulary, because there's there's some words that, that maybe um, English learners and maybe even some English teachers are just not familiar with, and those words would be plurilingualism and translanguaging. So, could you just give a kind of brief overview of, of what those words mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I'll I'll say where the two constructs are right now because they are still being developed. And as we move forward with uh, research, we will probably continue to develop the two concepts. Uh, So both plurilingualism and translanguaging are both a theory and also practice. So theoretically, the two constructs, they uh, developed separately uh, and from different epistemologies, so from different origins, let's put it this way. So, plurilingualism, both, both actually both actually originated in, in Europe, um, but plurilingualism comes more from a, a policy, uh, it's more policy-oriented, where the Council of Europe uh, and European Union would like to, to have European citizens speaking multiple languages, so that they can you know travel around and communicate with uh, different people uh, but also um, the, the fact that there are a lot of immigrants uh, moving to uh, European countries so it's also applied in, in language teaching so uh, it's the idea of validating uh, people's linguistic uh, and cultural repertoires but also teaching them uh, the target language whatever language it is right if it's uh, in Greece they're going to be learning Greek. If it's uh, in the UK, it's gonna be English. Uh, Translanguaging also originated in Europe, in Wales. um, And uh, it was more from a a grassroots approach. It wasn't a policy approach. So uh, it was mainly originated with the idea of using one language, using two languages actually, Welsh and English make sense of texts to, to in bilingual education uh, typically, so using language to read a text um, and then making a summary in Welsh, for example, so that you would develop um, competency uh, in both languages. Um, now this is the origin, however how they are applied in language teaching and language research nowadays, they are very similar um, in fact, it's it, sometimes people say that translanguaging and, and plurilingualism go hand in hand. Uh, there may be a few differences. Uh, for example, plurilingualism also takes into account uh, pluriculturalism, so all the cultures or cultural backgrounds that people have within themselves, not necessarily one culture, um, or even that the, the idea of culture is. Uh, it's not the culture that we think about museum or art or anything. It's about uh, values, customs, uh, things that people believe in, how people behave, etc., etc. Uh, and not necessarily thinking that one culture is better than the other, of course. There is no such a thing. Whereas translanguaging does not necessarily uh, highlight this area. It's mostly in, uh, in language, right? Now, within a plurilingual approach, uh, translanguaging is also one of the approaches that is used in the classroom. So uh, I I like to say that plurilingualism could be an umbrella where there are several different pedagogical approaches and translanguaging would be one of them. So translanguaging is getting students to use the languages that they know to make sense of a new language, for example. So, If you have, let's say, two students in your classroom, one speaks Spanish as a first language and one speaks Chinese as a first language, and they're both in the same class learning English. So you're going to make sure to come up with pedagogical um, materials that engage these students in the languages that they already know to make sense of a new language. So in this case, it would be English. But that doesn't mean that they are going to be using their L1 only. L1 is the first language, right? So it could be uh, that those students, Chinese students, for example, um, in China, it's an understatement to say Chinese is the only language that Chinese people speak, because we have several variations, several dialects, depending on the region that you come from. So it's important to engage students in, in not only using, but also thinking about all of those languages and variations while they're learning a new language. Um, Let's see, a a very simple example would be uh, if you have a list of vocabulary. So getting students not only to match vocabulary with the definition, but also asking them to think about that particular vocabulary in their uh, first language or second language or variations, right? Many times students are able to make connections in meaning between those languages. Um, They may make connections in pronunciation. uh, They may make connections in uh, morphology. Um, They may not make connections at all. It could be that some words don't have an equivalent in another language, right? So the word in Portuguese, for example, saudades, which means when you miss someone a lot, um, I cannot think of any word in English, for example, to represent that particular word. So you would have to explain what saudaji means um, instead of you know just translating it. Um, now, through this reflection and through this awareness. Students are, a, that's, that's my, my hypothesis, actually. I have to do more research uh, on that to, to see if that's true. My hunch is that students are able to, uh, they, they do make these connections or not, and they are able to remember the word or retrieve the word in the, in the new language better than if they didn't have all those discussions and all that reflection. So, and to learn a language, awareness is extremely important. Without awareness, it's, you know, it's uh, it's uh, very difficult to actually acquire a new language. So, having this process of not only discussion, sometimes it could be discussion with a peer, where both are talking about their languages. One can actually teach the other, the other person a little bit of their language. That doesn't mean that the language is the target language, right? You're not teaching that particular language, but you are... Uh, not only allowing the students to use those languages, but uh, encouraging students to, uh, to make those connections among the languages. So, mm-hmm. plurilingualism in a way, uh, it's not only about a monolingual competence, uh, it's about building that plurilingual competence of being aware of uh, multiple languages, but not necessarily speaking all of those languages fluently, but uh, at least having an awareness, having some knowledge, and uh, respecting and validating um, those languages.
0: It's funny because you know if when when you look at the the concept, it makes perfect sense. And in fact, the concept is is backed up by all of the neuroscience that that shows that that language in the brain is basically all connected. You know, the the brain is a machine that's designed to make connections between concepts and and, and ideas and categories and all of that, but. There, I, I, know, I know that right now there are um, students, and, and especially teachers, maybe if they're from an older generation as well, who are saying, "Wait a minute. Um, as far as I know, we, all, we have to always use English in the classroom. We should never break this this monolingual instruction. Um, and you know this this goes against these, this kind of core idea that um, that, you know, monolingual is the only way and the best way to, 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 to teach and learn a language.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, I don't blame language teachers because that's how the field of language education and applied linguistics or SLA second language acquisition has been developed on a monolingual, um, on monolingual traditions, right, because that's what was believed that would you know, make people learn a new language. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one, of the, the, one of the research projects that I, I have actually is to get teachers uh, engaging in teacher education on plurilingual approaches, because um, honestly, in, in Canada at least, or in other contexts, um, even in EFL context, contexts, you know, populations are very diverse. It's almost impossible to get one particular community where you're going to have native speakers of one language only. And even if you do, they are definitely exposed to, you know, TV, internet, right? When we get the youth uh, now that not only do they Engage on internet, etc. But they play games. They they read manga. They watch Korean drama. They listen to k-pop It's (laughs) It's a phenomenon that they're already exposed to it Uh, So since they're already exposed to it, let's let's use the knowledge that you have in that particular area and, uh, and leverage, you know, language learning and teaching and building this plurilingual and pluricultural competence. Because at the end of the day, it's important for society to have people who respect different languages. Uh, they, they provide value to those languages and cultures instead of, oh, you speak French, like like here there is this this. this this division between French and English, not as much as there used to be, but, uh, you know, I'm a francophone. Oh, no, I am an anglophone. Oh, you are an allophone. Allophone is a term used here for people who don't speak English or French, as if people didn't speak any language at all. (laughs) Um, And uh, (laughs) in order for you to consider yourself an anglophone, you have to speak English as a native speaker. So even though I I speak English, I'm not considered an Anglophone. Mm, So if I speak French, so if I develop French, I'm not going to be considered a Francophone either. So what am I? I'm going to be an Anglophone uh, for the rest of my life. Or even um, students who have an ESL background, right, the, the we, we have a the tendency to say, oh, this person has an ESL background to say that they are not a native speaker. Um, so once you have an ESL background, you're going to have an ESL background forever because even if you take Cambridge exams, TOEFL exams, IELTS exams, people will all, always label you as you are a non-native speaker of that particular language. So we have to stop that. That that's that's you know it's 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 about time that we <laughs> and I speak about this very passionately, of course, because I'm biased. <laughs> um, but but even in the first language, right? I my first I don't even know what my first language is, but Portuguese is one of the languages that are dominant to me: Portuguese and English. But even in Portuguese or in any language, we we have a tendency to say. Um, oh, my accent or the variety I speak is, has more status than yours or discriminate against other people because they speak in one way or another way. So linguistic discrimination comes because of this uh, monolingual ideology that we have you mm-hmm. know, collected through years and years and years of experience.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I sort of see a lot of times like this linguistic discrimination I definitely feel like it's one of the last acceptable prejudices. Like, you know, we've we've evolved as a culture to not um, you know, discriminate against, you know, skin color and, and gender and these kind of things. But, you know, when it comes to language, it's like we're living in the eighteenth century sometimes, right?
1: Yes, yes. And policies in, in many countries, they, they still they are very discriminatory. One of the policies here in Quebec, for example mandates that people use French and French only, and uh, French sh- should be the language of work, uh, language of study, language of identity. Like, whoa, so now we have policies mandating how people identify because, because of colonial legacy.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, one of, one of the things that I love, one of the things I love about language is that no matter how hard these these kind of uh, bodies, you know, how, how, no matter how hard they try to, to sort of contain and constrain language, language always has a way of saying, well, no, actually I'm going to do what I want anyway, so.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And th- this is the beauty of, of, of language and how language, you know, uh, develops in societies and how language policies try to suppress that particular yes. uh, action.
0: Yes. And, and, and what's interesting is, um, e- even though I know that, that you said that, you know, at the moment you have this kind of hypothesis, but your your doctoral thesis, which was about um, the difference between plurilingual or monolingual instructions in a Canadian university program, it, it actually showed, um, you know, real real results. For example, it showed um, an increase in pluricultural awareness, cognitive development, empathy, and relatability so you know they are they're real you know real tangible results it's not just some sort of um abstract theory right
1: not at all not at all and i was very interested uh it's interesting that this project developed out of my own um skepticism uh because at the time that i was doing my phd i was reading a lot about plurilingualism and translanguaging and you know cross-linguistic pedagogies and there were at the time there were few studies actually comparing plurilingual approaches to monolingual approaches, and, uh, and and then I thought, well, I don't I don't even believe in this plurilingual approach anyways. Let's see how better <laughs> it is or not, right? Because it's important to um, to 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 verify um, and collect data really on empirical data to see what works and what doesn't work. And I was very interested in. in in um, investigating what worked from a pedagogical perspective, but also from uh, uh, the student's perspective. So I I gather data from both teachers and students. So the study that I conducted, I recruited teachers, English teachers, um, teachers who were teaching English uh, for academic purposes. So this this is a program at a university in Ontario, which is an English-dominated context. And, um, and I asked them to use plurilingual approaches in one group and monolingual approaches, things that they were already doing in a second group. So luckily, each teacher was teaching two groups of students, so they would use plurilingual approaches with one and monolingual approaches with another one. So the content was very similar, was pretty much the same, for example, um, they had to teach idioms, so they were teaching the same idioms in a monolingual approach. You know, matching, doing um, role plays, etc., etc., and um, and teaching idioms in a plurilingual approach. So the plurilingual one. So they were teaching students how to engage them. With their languages, so many times students would go to the board and write down idioms in their languages. Compare, you know, English with Turkish with Russian. Uh, compare meaning. Uh, one of uh, I remember during the classroom observation, uh, one Chinese student talked about uh, the idiom "shoot for the stars," that has a very good connotation in English. That you know, we should dream and dream high and big. And uh, in Chinese, they have a similar idiom, but the meaning is very different. It, it, the meaning is like, whoa, you're not being modest, so you shouldn't be using that idiom as much. Or culturally, it's, it doesn't fit, right? Um, so if, if, you, if students are not making those connections, they might even be using the word shoot for the stars in English, but with a Chinese uh, meaning, you know what I mean? So, um, and, and these conversations do not happen in a monolingual framework. If you are teaching English and teaching only, English only and not engaging students in those kinds of reflections or, or experiences in class, you know, they're, they're not going to be making those connections. Not to yeah. talk about pragmatics and vocabulary, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, so...
0: Yeah, well, well, actually, you you have created a website um, which is full of teaching resources, which is um, called Breaking the Invisible Wall. And, and, and I'm curious, well, you explained a little bit, but I'm curious about why you feel like that is an invisible wall.
1: Well, I, I named the website because of something that a student of mine actually said. Um, way back when, when I was already trying to use plurilingual approaches and getting students to talk about their culture, um, there was an activity that I asked students, and these were students who were international students studying English here in Canada. Um, And some of these students were uh, placed in host families. And uh, one of the students, well, I, I don't remember exactly what the, what the task was. But I, I had students talk about difficulties that they had in Canadian society, You know, generally speaking, in terms of discrimination or in terms of people who do not understand the way they, they behave or they, they, the way they speak. And one of the things that the student, had, uh, the, the student said was that um, in his homestay, he was not allowed to cook Korean food. He was from Korea. Because his whole family thought it was smelly, and you know, uh, <laughs> full of you know prejudices against uh, his own food, and he didn't have access to this, and he didn't have access to that, and he said it's very difficult to talk to my family, as if there was an invisible wall between me and them because of our cultural backgrounds, and when uh, he's when he. When he and when he talked about the invisible wall, and that was, you know, before Trump, <laughs> we did, we weren't even talking about Trump at that time. Um, <laughs> he, um, and then uh, through the conversations we had in class and through scenario building, then we had some drama exercises. He managed to use some of the drama scenarios at home to actually not confront the host family, but try to explain to the host family what food meant for him, because the relationship between food and, and Korean culture is, is very strong. So for him not being able to cook Korean food was pretty much taking away from his identity as a Korean person, and that hit him hard. So, uh, then he came back to school and uh, he said, oh, yeah, I tried some of the, the drama exercises at home and uh, it actually worked. I am able to cook my food now and it's as if the invisible wall was broken. And I was like, wow, can I use that for, <laughs> for my website? Because <laughs> I was in the process of uh, creating the tasks already. Mm-hmm. And he was very happy to to, to say yes, of course. So, um, yeah, so the, the website... Um, has a few resources, but mainly uh, the tasks that were used um, in the study that I conducted in, in during my PhD, so uh, especially the plurilingual ones. I didn't include the monolingual ones because everybody knows what it is, but if people were interested in, in looking at both, they can look at my thesis, it's online, and both are there, or just send me an email and I'll be happy to, to share.
0: Yeah, well, um, it's an amazing piece of work. In fact, you won an award for your thesis.
1: Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking. Um, now that I, I don't, I don't mean to brag, but I'm I'm actually asking which one. <laughs> I won a few awards with with that, uh, with that one. One was the the best thesis of the year for, um, Boise University of Toronto. Another one at the um, American Association for Applied Linguistics, which was the Multilingual Matters uh, Awards, mm-hmm. um, and a few other Canadian awards. Uh, but. Um, yeah, and it was, it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic to be recognized and um, and to see that my research actually has value in society. It's it's really um I'm humbled to 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 recognize that I have been very lucky as well. Of course, we do a lot of work, etc. But I've been very lucky that it has been very well received. So yeah,
0: yeah. And and I think something that's that's really interesting to me and something that nobody really talks about in the world of, of, of language teaching, is the importance of culture. And I think what's, what's really nice about the concept of plurilingualism is that it takes into account um, culture as, as almost an integral part of classroom learning. Um, I mean, ha, how important do you think that culture is in the, in the language learning process?
1: I have, condu- I have just finished conducting a study that I was, um, I'm, it's a validation process of a, a scale that has language and culture together, plurilingualism and pluriculturalism, because I was interested in knowing if they would be separate constructs or one construct, um, and that, that has to do with language and culture. Right. So I thought, well, you know, perhaps going to be two different constructs because they are unrelated. We can totally see language and culture separately. But I in all the 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 uh, the tests that I had um, that I have done in all of them, language and culture are very integrated. Uh, So that speaks a lot to how we teach language in in and we don't talk much about the culture. You know that comes together with that language, right? Mm. So, for example, if you're teaching people how to uh, how to write in one particular language, so in English we have the topic sentence, then we have you know the the five is it five paragraph essay? <laughs> Forget already. Or <laughs> yeah. as if in every language we would write that way, right? So then we have. You know, Chinese speakers of English using a lot of metaphor, you know, talking about flowers to actually mean society. And then English speakers who only speak English, they go like, Whoa, I don't understand this. That's wrong. But, you know, it's not wrong. It's, it's just that, you know, that the culture has not been explored uh, in both ways. Right. Because it, it goes It's not a one-way thing. It has to go both ways. And English teachers, you know, uh, I'm making a very broad statement, but we are taught, like when we take uh, TASO programs, uh, teaching certificates, we are taught to use one language only. And we teach from the assumption that the the language is connected to one particular uh, dominant culture, which is the academic culture. Uh, or the standard English culture, whichever standard that is, um, and we we rarely get students to talk about their own culture and how they write or how they speak, how they do presentations in their languages. What's their relationship at home? How they actually communicate uh, with their parents? Do they communicate with their parents? You know. Uh, so and then we, if we expect people to be behaving. In that particular dominant culture, we have to open up. Well, first of all, we shouldn't have that expectation. Uh, but second, we have to open up the discussion, and uh, and and teachers are not taught how to do that. Mm. So it, I don't blame teachers. Um, I blame I I don't, I don't even blame one person. It's the field how how it has been developed, and uh, and how our societies have have been developed too. Right. So uh, yeah. we need change.
0: In in a way, I'm really encouraged by by some of the the things that I've been seeing recently. Like you know, I know that there's there's um, people who are advocating against, uh, for example, um, non-native speaker discrimination in in teaching. And I know uh, I was speaking yesterday to somebody from from Sweden, who has a language advocate program. And what they do is they teach the local Swedish people to accept. To accept the the people who are trying to learn Swedish, it's like attacking this problem from from the other way. You know, rather than trying to educate the immigrants to to be more Swedish, they're saying to the Swedish people, "Well, you should also learn to be a little bit more like the immigrants."
1: Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Because we're always putting the onus on the immigrant, right? So it's you, immigrant, who has to learn the dominant culture as if the people who are in the dominant culture did not have to learn anything from anybody. You're absolutely right. And I'm, and like you, I'm very excited. I always tell my students, well, my students of course are much younger than me, uh, especially at the undergrad level. Um, And, and they are, they are, they are very sharp, you know, people, advocates, they they have a different type of awareness than, than me when I was their age. Um, I was aware, but you know, Perhaps we didn't have as, much, um, as many chances or, you know, the way that we would advocate for things was a little bit different and fighting for social justice, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. So
0: I, I don't know if you can actually talk about some of your forthcoming work, because I know that, for example, there's something under review right now, which is translanguaging for vocabulary improvement. How did translanguaging help with, with vocabulary?
1: Right, so translanguages, so that was a part of the, it was one portion of the, the, my PhD work where uh, the teachers applied three tasks in a translanguaging way and uh, other tasks in a monolingual way. So uh, the students who engaged in, a trans, in translanguaging tasks talking about you know, vocabulary and using vocabulary differently in different languages, they had higher uh, vocabulary scores at the end of the term, compared to the students in the monolingual group. Hmm. I wasn't really surprised by that. And to be very honest, I, we, we have to do more research to see if this, this was actually because of the translanguaging tasks. It could be that the students were better in one class than the other. Okay. Uh, but what surprised me was how engaged students were because I did qualitative and quantitative analysis. So in the qualitative portion, students were really engaged. They were really willing to participate in class and they were really uh, eager to learn from each other. Um, and this, this was very telling.
0: And also, I know that there's um, there's another piece of research, um, plurilingualism and TESOL, in two Canadian post-secondary institutions.
1: Oh, that's right, that's right. Oh, yes, that hasn't been published yet. No,
0: not yet. <laughs> um,
1: it's been in the pipeline for a while. Yeah, in, in that one, I provide two uh, examples of, of two different contexts, um, ESL, in Canada, both in Canada, but one for immigrant students and another one for international students. Because something that is important to say too is that plurilingualism or plurilingual pedagogy, um, it shouldn't be taught um, top down and it shouldn't be, oh, here is how you teach, go and teach it. We don't have only one particular way of teaching through a plurilingual approach. Um, In certain programs, you're going to use more of the target language and very little of other languages. In other programs, you can have more freedom. In other programs, you cannot use other languages at all, right? So, um, and sometimes students are also expecting, oh, no, 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 I I want an English only approach here because at home I speak other languages. So um, in this one, I I provide examples of how plurilingual pedagogy can work in different ways uh, with different population. Um yeah so stay tuned.
0: I think it's really exciting because well i've 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 literally heard teachers say that that if for example, if they have only one hour with their students, they only want to speak English with the students because they feel like if they spend five minutes um talking in in Spanish or French that they're robbing them of this kind of English time this immersion time but but actually well your research seems to show that um that that's just just really not the case that and, and again i mean you know when you look at the the research like the neurological evidence like it's obvious that we have to make those connections between you know between culture and and our existing languages and
1: absolutely and uh the fact that um when when we say that other languages should be part of the program that doesn't mean that uh we can allow students to do whatever they want. You know, the the, the languages have to be, they have to have a pedagogical principle. So are you you encouraging them to use, it could be that they are using actually voicing it, but it could be that you're just asking them to think about it. So a very simple example, when you are teaching, I don't know, present continuous in French, you know, it could be vice versa, right? So present continues in French, you only use the base form. Present continues in English, you have to use the verb to be plus ing. So if you're teaching French, you know, making sure to tell people like, oh, it's just, it's not like English because in English you use the present form, the present simple form, so you do the same in French and vice versa. But it can still be, you know, using the the target language, but just getting students to make the connections in their minds, because they're going to be making connections in their minds, anyways. Some are going to be making more than others, but getting students to actually make those connections, if they're not, is is important.
0: So, based on your your kind of work and also your your vast personal experience learning different languages, um, you know, is there any sort of sort of key piece of advice that you would give to someone? who's, um, you know, maybe especially trying to learn a language on their own. Um, you know, what, what, what's, the, what's the secret to, to language learning, you know?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I wish I could answer in, in one minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, can, I, I can tell you from uh, evidence and also from, you know, personal experience, um obviously you have to see what kind of learner you are some people are more visual some people you know listen better some people engage they 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 need to engage with other people to actually advance some some people are able to read um
0: <laughs> uh, I, I, honestly, I didn't expect you to, to answer that question in, in, in 30 seconds, don't worry.
1: <laughs> that's a tough one. <laughs> well, this, this is something that I'm doing right now. I have very little time. And uh, even though I am in a, French, in a French context, I live right downtown Montreal. Downtown Montreal, everybody speaks at least two languages, English and, and French. And a third and a fourth, you know, people are minimum trilingual here. So even for me, it's very difficult to get, uh, to have opportunities outside Mm. of my own home Mm. to access French. Because every time I say bonjour, comment ça va, people hear my accent and they immediately switch to English to make conversation better. So I go like, wow, then I'm not practicing my Francais. Yeah, <laughs> that's awful. <laughs>
0: that's and awful.
1: of course I do, yeah. I do, I do a lot of listening. I try to engage with uh, cultural things here. I'm very interested in learning any culture, really. So watching TV instead of watching the news in English and here we have both channels in English and in French so I'll watch the French Channel okay. you know things like that for me uh, learning the language together with the culture makes more sense mm-hmm. uh, so that's something that people might want to um, to be open to right
0: yeah I mean is that is that kind of a little thing that students can can sort of start to incorporate fr- from this approach is is starting to integrate some culture with some language learning
1: absolutely and being very open to cultures too because if we start learning a language, any language, thinking that, oh, this culture is weird, or, oh, people in this culture do this, that's so awkward. Oh, why, why do they do that? Well, if you, first you have to deconstruct your own biases, um, that if the language, or even language, oh, in French we have gender for, like if you're going to say table, the table has gender. Oh, this is so awkward. <laughs> well, this is a different type of language. <laughs> so you just ha- you first of all you have to accept the language and the culture, how people behave, how people um, you know uh, engaging social actions and uh, and learn from them because uh, that that's something that we are missing a lot in, in language teaching. Learning learning a language from the cultural aspect.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, if if you sort of think about. How most language classrooms are set up today, despite all that we know about about you know language acquisition, you know there's like a teacher with a workbook and, you know, how do you sort of feel about that, knowing what you know?
1: Oh yeah, well, <laughs> um, we have to see the population too, right? So, um, for example, here in Canada and in many other countries that have been colonized. We, we talk about teaching languages to uh, indigenous communities. So I cannot imagine me going to an indigenous community here in Canada and setting up you know, the classroom the way you know, English and French settlers you know, told you to do, or even teaching the language the way we have been told to teach. So uh, it, it's inevitable that you will have to, to be open. And as a language teacher, of course, you have to be open to, to do some needs analysis and, um, in, the, in the social context to, to learn more about your participants, to learn more about your students. Uh, so in any context, really, uh, I think if it's EFL or ESL, it's very important for us to, to know who our students are, what their goals are, their aspirations, and uh, how they learn best. Uh, but I'm, well, and I, I have a drama background too, so I'm all for having circles, sitting down on the floor, and let's engage, let's get up, you know, let's go outside. Yeah,
0: well, let, let's actually go back just a, a few years and let's talk about this. So this was from um, 2000, and uh, where's the date on it? Uh, I, I, don't, I can't find it, actually. Um, drama for L2 Speaking and Language Anxiety. Now this is really interesting. So you use drama in, in in the in the language classroom, and this research shows that it reduces um, people's anxiety about about speaking in their the, the new language, right?
1: Right. So um, it's important to say that anxiety in this case is not anxiety, the clinical anxiety. It's a foreign language speaking anxiety. So it's a anxiety that we have when we are speaking a foreign language. In this case, we are using foreign because it was a foreign EFL context. Um, So yeah, so this was a study that I conducted with uh, teenagers in an English program. And once again, there were two groups, one using drama, one not using drama. And the one using drama had uh, a reduction in foreign language speaking anxiety. It wasn't statistically, statistically significant between groups Probably because the students were not that anxious <laughs> to start with. Uh, so as a group, uh, we didn't—I I wasn't able to see that difference. But at an individual level, those students who had um, more anxiety they reported being uh, less anxious at the end of the program, um, and they they really talked about the drama practices for helping them. So in the drama practice, they were using. Uh, what we call process and product drama. So process is engaging in um, um, solving situations, difficult situations, in discussions, etc. doing role plays, improvisations. But the product one was related to, you know, something similar that we already do in, in the classroom, getting students to, to take a look at a role play and uh, a scripted role play, right, and uh, try to use this role play in different ways um, Different emotions, for example. So try to say this as if you were super happy. Try to say this as if you were super upset. Uh, where does the intonation go, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I remember one of the students that I interviewed who was really, really anxious at the very beginning. She said that drama, drama was the thing that she said. Oh yes, I loved the drama practice. It really helped me to speak the language. I'm not afraid of speaking it anymore. And then I asked her, um, oh, hmm, why is that? Well, what what made drama be so nice? And uh, she said, well, because it wasn't me who was speaking. It was my character who was speaking. So if my character made a mistake, it wasn't me. It was my character. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah, even that idea of um, having multiple identities. So um, that, that, that was really telling, too, um, So uh, because we we have a tendency to to think that we we have only one identity, that we cannot be anywhere, anybody else, uh, even using a second language or a third language. So sometimes sometimes we feel different when we are using one language than when we are using another language. And that feeling different doesn't mean that it's negative. Mm. Um, It can be positive. It could be that you feel differently or that you you position yourself differently in different languages too.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, again, I feel that this, this is a really important aspect of, of language learning that isn't really talked about a lot, and that is kind of, you know, fear. Fear of speaking, fear of using the language in in the real world, like outside the classroom. Um, and and I think it would be, you know, I'd love to see more language classrooms doing, doing acting role plays, that, that would be great.
1: Yeah, and fear doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that drama, um, you know, you're not afraid anymore, because you're using drama, you you still have that anxiety, but you learn how to manage that anxiety. So to this day, I, I have acting training. And uh, I remember my director when I was like, the first time I went on stage, and he asked me, oh, do you have butterflies in your stomach? And I was like, yes, I do. And he said, that's good. That That means you care about the audience. So if you don't have that, you know, feeling anymore, that kind of anxiety when you go on stage, stage anxiety, uh, that would be a negative thing. So use that anxiety and try to uh, channel this anxiety into something positive, that it's something that you may always have, but that doesn't mean that it's negative. Uh, And you just learn how to handle it.
0: Love it. Love it. What is the main change that you would like to see in the, in the world of language teaching you know, over the next 10 years?
1: I would like to see teachers um, engaging more with the linguistic and cultural resources that students already have. Um, I would like to see people recognizing this as valuable I would like to see people engaging in learning, not only from a teacher-student perspective, but also learn from the students. We have a tendency to see, to, to, to think that teachers deposit, it's the banking idea from Paulo Freire, right? That you deposit the knowledge and you don't learn anything from the students. Um, Any language teaching, it's such a great opportunity for teachers to actually learn from the students. Uh, not not only learn concepts, but also learn a few words in other languages. Uh, learn different perspectives. We need more of that in our world. And, th- and, and thinking about of that, th- the idea of social social justice in language teaching. Um, why are we teaching that particular language? Why are we teaching students to speak like a native speaker? If this only, uh, you know. Uh, corroborates for linguistic discrimination so uh, i would really like to see teachers reflecting on those uh, big ideas because sometimes we don't do much about that because on the day to day we have our lesson okay i have to to cover simple present and present perfect in one lesson Uh (laughs) sometimes we don't have time for that but uh even you know when we come up with examples with the present perfect can we include an example that has a social meaning in and engages students into you know deeper discussions because um that's something that we really need in the world uh, in terms of um not only language teaching but in in anything really
0: wow awesome well angelica galante thank you very much for your time
1: thanks for having me